This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30-Euro-Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code TARASAGCLARK. Across Northern Ireland, on your radio... And on BBC Sounds. This is the Stephen Nolan Show. Good morning. It's a it's a mixed bag on the Nolan Show this morning. Really, really important stuff about education and the funding for for children wherever they're learning in Northern Ireland. To mice getting into boilers. To people going out dancing in a nightclub over thirty. All coming up this morning on the biggest show in the country. The Stephen Nolan Show! Our top story this morning, teaching unions have given the bleak warning that it will take a generation to solve problems facing the sector. The dire financial situation of our, our schools, they say, means they're struggling to provide the basics for our children here in Northern Ireland, struggling to provide first aid kits, stationery, even soap for kids to wash their hands. Graeme Galt the, from the National Association of Head Teachers has been speaking at the Education Committee this week. Our schools are struggling to provide the bare minimum. First aid kits, soap, paper towels, basic classroom assistance, stationery, paper, paper, a lot of ICT equipment that has been purchased is now reaching its end of life. Schools can't replace it. This is, this is just the basic stuff. Keeping lights on, we have to do so, so much better. Well, Graeme is with us now. Graeme, good morning. Good morning, Stephen. Spell, How are you? I'm okay, thank you. Spell out for us. When we're talking here about, and we've heard it before, but is it still the case that some schools cannot afford soap for kids? Stephen, it's not still the case. It's <laughs> it's actually worse than that. It's, it's, nothing has improved. It's, it's got a lot worse. And it's incredible, actually, that this is still headline news. That, that should be the big story. Because I sat in your studio five years ago when I was a school principal telling you and your listeners that parents were having to donate tissues and toilet paper and basic essentials uh, to my school. It's not got. It's not just still the case. It's still the case for my school, as where I was principal, but this is actually now magnified right out across the system. Most schools are relying on parents to give donations of stuff, and they're relying on their teachers to provide soap and pencils and stationery. It's incredible. Go through the, the, the basics that, that some of us might expect schools have to have that they do not. So schools are really struggling to just buy pencils, rubbers, paper, exercise books, uh, I mean, sets of textbooks. There, there are some great, for example, math schemes out there for primary schools. Schools can't afford to buy them. Replacements of reading books. Reading books, if you think of young children in 
for example, year two, year three, year four, who go through lots of very early reading books. They go through a book a night, perhaps. Those books are taken home and they have a lifespan, uh, and, and, but they can't be replaced. So the basic essential is just to provide learning experiences to our children in just maths and English can't be afforded and if we're thinking about other things that are that are now basics ICT uh, for example or STEM subjects that schools just can't afford to provide the learning experiences that our children demand but the scale of the problem Stephen is not just one school struggling you know to buy a few things that cost a few pounds the scale of the problem is mind-boggling because the deficit that our schools are in across the system that over half of our schools are now in the red that means when they start the financial year their budget is it, it, they're starting the, the year with a deficit to their budget some some of our schools deficits are running to many millions of pounds because they, they they're just not funded well enough and that cumulative deficit across all of our schools is above 60 million pounds that's 60 million pounds of money that our schools don't have just to run day-to-day activities and the maintenance backlog in our schools, according to the EA, uh, about eight months ago, the figure was given at five hundred million pounds to make our schools safe and warm and watertight. No, you, you talk about our schools being. There's a difference between a school not being as warm as it should, and when you use the word safety, there, surely our schools are safe. We actually have schools uh, across Northern Ireland where they're is water running down the insides of parts of buildings. There, there are, It's not an exaggeration to say that in some of our schools, uh, in some very deprived areas, there are classrooms where you could almost push your hand through the window panes that, you know, some of the areas are so rotten, so decayed. This Now, I'm not blaming the Department of Education or the Education Authority or CCMS or anyone else. I'm blaming the block amount of money that's put into education and not just in recent years, this isn't just a problem that we can attribute to the failure of Stormont over the last two years. This is a problem that started 13 years ago when a process of cumulative year-on-year underinvestment into education was started. And the truth of it is, Stephen, I've said this in your show before, children in Northern Ireland per head are funded less for their education than anywhere else in the UK or Ireland. Our children are the poor cousins to children anywhere else on these islands <laughs> and we as a society should be standing up jumping up and down and banging tables and shouting and screaming that our children are being neglected in so, this way so i don't understand um how what you've just said stacks up for this reason we get a barn barnet formula here which means that that that, that essentially we get money uh which which is in line with what we get, with what is paid across the water into all different departments, then actually we get more. It's called a fiscal floor, isn't it? And we get more uh, than people would get, for example, in England. We get 24% more. So how are you telling me that our children, in terms of their education, get less than their comparatives? across the water. Hi. Well, this is a question our politicians need to answer. I'm not an expert in the Barnett formula or the fiscal floor, but I am aware that our political parties are united in their 
understanding that the fiscal floor that applies to Northern Ireland is poor in comparison with Wales and Scotland. Uh, but the the amount of money that I'm talking about is the amount of money that is put into directly into education, and that's a political decision. So the amount of money that comes to Northern Ireland is a political decision. How it's distributed is a political decision. And then once the money comes into education, we have another problem in Northern Ireland, and that is the way money is divided up within education, how it's distributed out to schools. And we, we have seemingly uh, a lot of services that are provided centrally that, uh, that swallow up a lot of money in the system so that the money that actually goes to schools is, is much less in Northern Ireland. The money that actually goes to schools to, to buy the products that they need to deliver learning and teaching and safeguarding for children is much less meaningful and impactful in Northern Ireland than elsewhere. Our whole structure of funding in schools and the distribution of money and the allocation of money needs to be urgently Surely, reviewed. You know, I, what, what I'm also trying to test this morning, quite frankly, Graham, is, is whether you, look, for all the best will in the world and, and for good intention, whether you're hyping this up beyond the reality, okay? And I'm not trying to be cheeky, but when I see that, that, that you're saying that, you know, schools can't afford first aid kits, my mind tells me that a school must legally have to have first aid around a building when they're, you know, especially when there are children involved. So, are you hyping this when you're saying there's no first aid kits, there's there's no soap for kids? Are you hyping this? No, and I'm not saying there are no first aid kits. I'm saying schools are struggling to afford first aid kits. Uh, look, Stephen, over fifty percent of our schools are in deficit positions. That means they are in debt. That means they 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 are spending more money every year than they have coming into their budget, significantly more in many, many cases. So they are buying first aid kits. They are buying uh, the bare essentials, but they're running into huge debts. And some of them, some, some school leaders are under a great deal of pressure, both from their governors and from the Education Authority and others, to reduce spending but the the average in fact this is this is the easiest way to understand this Stephen across all of our schools the average spend that a school makes 96% of that goes on staffing what now and that you 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 can't run a school if you don't have the staff and very few of our schools if any are overstaffed 96% of your spend is on staff what does that leave you keep on the lights you pay for the bare essentials uh, like water and so on. What does that actually leave for the children for, for learning and teaching and providing quality experiences for mm. the children? Like I, I, I wouldn't be sitting here today where I am in the BBC without Spring Hill Primary School up on the Ballygabarton Road. Uh, I, I, I think of the fantastic teachers. I think of the, the headmaster, like he's dead now, Ronnie Lamont. Um, I, I, I think of the education I had in, in Inst, you know, glorious, just, just, just glorious days with, with investment and money pumped into me as a human being. And, 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 and then I think, look, is every child getting that type of opportunity, that type of input, that type of investment? And, and if they don't, what chance have they got? Well, Stephen, Robbie Meredith, uh, said it really well, actually. I think it was in June of or July of last year in an article on BBC. 
He said schools are experts at hiding their problems. Schools are experts at disguising their issues because uh, teachers, classroom assistants and school leaders um, daily sacrifice themselves and sacrifice so much to make sure that their schools are presented as soft, gentle, colourful, loving environments for their children. And they should do that. But in doing that, they're hiding actually the true scale of the problem. And that's what I'm talking about at the moment. We, we've been saying for years and years and years that this is getting worse and worse, that schools would be heading into crisis. Schools are totally in crisis. Not all schools, but the vast majority of our schools are absolutely in crisis financially. And it's going to take not just a huge influx of money directly into school budgets, that's required, not just a, a, a huge influx of money into the school estate, that's required, uh, not just huge very essential money into wow. Where's special... Where's huge money coming from? I, I don't know, but... but so Jeffrey Stephen... Donaldson, when he was sitting here a few weeks, said he was confident um, of, of getting more money than the $3.3 billion. Uh, he, In fact, I think he said that day he was going off to, to have negotiations around that. Where is this extra money? Well, I don't know where the money comes from, Stephen, but uh, to answer that question, I'd probably ask where the money has gone because uh, 10 years ago we were doing much better than this. The money has the money has been removed. It has it's it's actually been transferred over time cumulatively from education so, and from public services in Northern Ireland to other places. Some parents um, are asked in schools to give voluntary contributions. Um, for those parents who can pay, should they be pumping more on a voluntary basis into their local school? Well, you know, should should there be some should there be some and I stress for those parents who can pay, should there be some normality around that? That that, that? that schools, look, it's not an ideal situation, but given where you're at, you're describing it as a crisis. Should there be some normality around those parents who can pay pumping whatever it is in, well, there, into there, their school? There, there are two problems that I see with that immediately, Stephen. And the first is, why? My question is, why? Because, because there's a crisis already, and the but, government but, hasn't sorted it. <laughs> yeah, but it, but every parent is already paying their taxes. This, if this was working right, this, the state would be using <laughs> the money that we already provide as a society to fund. Look, it. I get but that. This, I hear that, Graham. But in the interim, when you're arguing they're not, and there is a crisis, if you take the next year, for example just a snapshot of the next year. If the government sort this in 12 months' time, there's a whole year's worth of kids that have missed a year of the proper input they should have. So should parents or should somebody fork up? Government should fork up. But uh, if if it's left to parents, and parents are very, very good and very, very kind, and uh, individually and through parent-teacher associations and through all sorts of creative fundraising uh, activities. Parents and communities provide all sorts of stuff for schools. But that leads to an, an inequity which is quite alarming, which is schools which are in affluent areas are able to raise a lot more money than schools which are in disadvantaged areas. Okay. And it's our most disadvantaged children here who are being most heavily impacted by the cuts across education. Dr. Keir Fitzpatrick listening to this this morning. Fitzpatrick listening from the University, Ulster University School of Law. Good morning, Kira. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Is it as much of a crisis as, as Graham is suggesting? 
It absolutely is. And, you know, I would challenge the assertion that it's anything close to hype by just going back to the 1st of June last year when in one day the Permanent Secretary of Education announced £172 million of cuts to education. And as Graham has just reflected there, the vast majority of those cuts were on discretionary programmes that are being run to support our most disadvantaged and marginalised children. And you talked about your own experience there, Stephen, and the investment that you have benefited from. I, lo- I loved every second of school. Every single second of it. One of the worst well, days of my life was when I left Inst. I had the leave. Well, <laughs> well, exactly. Well, I mean, if we just start off with that premise whereby we have a shared vision of the society that a good education in a safe, nurturing, warm environment where a child is able to access educational resources and enough food is one of the key tools to getting an individual child out of poverty, out of disadvantaged, and to propel them on a road of social mobility. Yet the cuts that have been made are essentially putting an anchor on the most disadvantaged children's feet. You see, all of those programmes being cut by up to 50% just last year. How are we ever going to achieve economic prosperity in Northern Ireland when we are just stunting our children's educational growth? I don't think, I I think this is, and look, if, if it is the case, it's a failure of the media, including myself. I don't think there is a sense in the wider community of a crisis in education. I don't think there is a, a sense of what what children who are not who are in schools where there there is that crisis that there is a wider recognition of what their typical day is like in a school. I I I I, I just it, it it there are some stories that punch through. There 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 are some issues that punch through. I'm not sure this is punching through. So spell that, it. That, that's a trend. That is a trend in terms of particularly those people who are most marginalised. They don't have a seat at the table. They don't have a voice on the radio and their stories aren't cutting through. Today I'm talking at an event at Clifton House that is focusing on educational underachievement and disadvantage in North Belfast. Now I used to be a volunteer in North Belfast and a teacher came to our charitable um came to our charity and said that there were young girls coming to his school who could not afford tights. And he was having to keep, he and his colleagues were having to keep a store of tights to keep those children warm. So as Graham very eloquently said there, the the cost is going on teachers. The cost is going on parents who are already having to pay for private autism assessments, who are already having to pay for private health care because they can't get through to their GP. So and it is just not accept, acceptable to go down this road where parents keep pulling our welfare state out of out of crisis. Are we prepared to watch our welfare state, our education system, our health system and our social security system crumble before our eyes? I wa- I wanna that's make, exactly what's been happening. I, I, I want to make this so understandable and, 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 and so real. So have we got a situation 
that in that that there are some children in Northern Ireland who have all of the books, all of the the the, the educational tools in primary school, let's say, for that child to start to develop their education. Does that contrast with a reality? And it might be irritating you, Graham, that I'm asking this, but I genuinely don't know. Are there some schools, is there a postcode lottery to such an extent where there are some schools that don't have those basics, that are struggling to provide children with, with books and learning tools that's standard elsewhere? I would say there is a degree of that, Steve. I can't hear you, Graham. Hold but, on. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I would say there's a degree of that. But I, I would go back to something you said a moment ago. You said a moment ago, we don't really, you know, you were blaming the media, but it's not really the media's fault. Well, it's we part of really... our role to make sure what's real out there is, is the public are well, aware of it. I don't think the story's punching through. I don't. I, I agree. And I'll tell you why. If we're talking about cuts in health and the financial impact of health, it's easily measurable. It's easily noticeable. People notice it in their appointment times with GPs. Uh, people notice it with waiting times at A&E, with the number of beds available in hospitals, even the fact that some hospitals from time to time have to close a wing because of understaffing and so on. In education, where there are financial cuts, the schools disguise it. They hide it because uh, the teachers and the classroom assistants and the school leaders and the communities, in some cases the parents themselves, take it on the chin because they want their school to be the cuddliest most uh, soft, gentle, loving, uh, supportive environment for the children. So the problem is hidden. Schools are experts at presenting themselves beautifully for the children to make sure that the children have the best possible experience. But it's a huge sacrifice because in behind the veneer of what schools are, are, are producing, the scaffolding that supports schools and helps them running is decaying and, very significantly. And then, Kira, you don't find out about the impact on a child for years after the underinvestment, presumably. Absolutely. I'll tell you what figures indicate that um, our education system is not solving underachievement, which has been one of the aims of the executive for a very long time. Um, and Professor Noel Purdy led on the Fair Start review. We have higher numbers of people on social security benefits in Northern Ireland. We have higher levels of what is called economic activity, which means that people aren't in work or aren't looking for work. We have higher levels of underattainment in Northern Ireland. So, I mean, if we want to create a prosperous economic society where people are able to thrive and contribute, then education is the central, central we're, pillar to that. We're going to speak to the Land Assembly, Nick Matheson, in just a second. First of all, William and Ballyholm, you, you don't recognise the problem, William, is that right? No, Stephen. I say I track my grandchildren. I'm 80 years of age, by the way. I track my grandchildren over various the last 10 years. The school that my grandchildren go is clean. I go into it. There's great care. There's more toys in the playground, by the way. Um, she comes out and he comes out with light crafts that are made in school. The pencil case is full, different markers, everything else. I just don't recognise anything there. Warm and cosy, a lovely environment to rear and bring up children and educate them. I just don't recognise anything. Can I say something else, uh, Stephen? As a pensioner, I'm only after getting 9% of a, a rise in my pension. 
my wife and I got £600 for heating. Last year, we got more than that, right? And I see that uh, pay raises are outstripping inflation. And all I hear is, with nothing, with nothing. And yet people come across in them boats, risking their lives to get to this country. And all we hear is doom and gloom. Now, thank you for letting me make that point. William, thank you. Nick Matheson, good morning, Nick. Sorry, Nick, let me bring you in. Um, How bad is the problem in your view? Um, Thank you, Stephen. And look, I I just want to to emphasise that I don't think uh, there is any sense of the problem being overstated at all. Um, And as chair of the Education Committee, I made it very clear that the first uh, group of people I wanted to come in and give evidence to the committee uh, were the teaching unions so that we could hear from the teaching profession, from school leaders on day one uh, as to exactly what the situation on the ground in schools is. I also have a personal connection to it. I have children in the education system and uh, I'm a school governor and my wife is also a teacher. So I see this very, very closely. And I think Graham is absolutely right. Schools are very, very good at hiding this. Schools want to give the absolute best that they can to children, and they do. And children are still getting a good education, but it is at a huge financial cost to those schools that are running deficits. uh, And ultimately, we are not uh, delivering the best for our children if schools are having to scrimp just to keep the lights on. Uh, And I I think I want to pay tribute to school leaders and and, and teachers in the system who, who really do go above and beyond every day to keep the system running, to keep uh, the, the show on the road. But I, I think we, we must be very, very careful about any suggestion that this is being overplayed. We, we have a crisis in funding of education, and I think that is, uh, is accepted by all political parties. Uh, and I think well, on if that it's basis, accepted all political by all, parties they need, need to commit to, to, to dealing with the issue. If it's accepted by all political parties, that, that the, those tough decisions around money... When are they going to be made? Where are they being made? How's the pie being sliced up? And, and, and there's no doubt we're, we're all aware uh, the financial pressures that, that we are under in Northern Ireland, and it is we are very, very glad to be back and to have an executive reestablished and to be back in the business of doing politics. I think it is regrettable that we had so long out uh, without any accountability and uh, nobody was being held accountable for the dis- spending decisions that were being taken there was no capacity to move money around to address need within the executive and, and we were living uh, really under extremely difficult cir- circumstances with with, a, with, a, with an extremely harsh budget that was set uh, from Westminster by the Secretary of State and that was felt extremely keenly in education I mean I think the EA block grant alone you know was hit with a cut of around 100 million uh, in the last financial year and the EA's principal uh, funding, its principal principal spend is to deliver budgets for schools. So, I mean, we, we really, you know, we, we were setting our schools up to fail in the last year and, you know, some political parties chose to, to abdicate their responsibility to deal with that. But we are back. We have had uh, additional input of money from Westminster. But but that money is, is, is really at this stage, you know, going to hopefully help us deal with matters like public sector pay. It's going to help us stabilise services. But, but the long-term impacts of underfunding uh, of education are not going to be dealt with overnight. So I think there's two there's two aspects to it. I think in the short term, we, we need to be ensuring that uh, whenever uh, fi- allocations are being made from finance and every department has its le- their legitimate uh, requests for money. Uh, and uh, you know we, we, we have to be realistic about those competing priorities. 
But if we're going to invest, surely we must prioritise investment in our children and young people. Um, that is an investment at the expense of what? And that, and that is our that is our investment. It's an investment to save, Stephen. So I don't accept the argument that it, that it in fact is uh, needs to be at the expense of anything else. Because if we don't invest in our children but and young it does. people, and I think if as, there is a think, finite pot of money, then you've I, got I to decide that. what not to spend that on elsewhere. I, I accept that, but I think it is important to set the terms out very clearly at the outset. And I think uh, Kira was, was very clear on this. If we fail to invest properly in our children and young people, particularly from the most uh, deprived communities, that spend it multiplies substantially okay. in health. It multiplies substantially in justice. It multiplies substantially in our welfare system. The Independent Review of Education set it out in very stark terms that we spend in the region of five hundred million pounds every year on late interventions in Northern Ireland, that money would be much better spent at the right point upstream, and there's no better place to do that than than, than our in our children and young people, and ensuring that schools have enough money to deliver the services that our children need. Nick, thanks very much, Dr. Kira Fitzpatrick. Thank you, Dr. Graham Gold. Thank you. I have a, a little problem that uh, I I want to discuss with you all. Well, in fact, it's Big Audrey, my mother. And, and it goes like this. And is this a common problem? So Audrey's had soot coming out of her chimney over the last lot of weeks. And we've discovered, the plumber has told us, um, that what this is, is it's mice getting into her garage and then the mice gravitate to the, to the boiler because they run towards the boiler. And then when they run towards the boiler, I don't know what happens, but they get sucked into it and they get burnt. And these things then, you see the suit coming out, like this, this black suit coming out of the, the, the chimney. And Audrey's then ringing me and running around the place in her wee nightgown going, I've got mice, I've got mice. And she doesn't have mice because the mice are burnt alive. So is this a, a, a common problem? And, 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 and what do you do? How do you keep, have you ever had a problem with mice getting into your boiler? Zero thirty thirty eighty. 80 55 55 because one of the benefits of this program is i know you can all help us and you often do so have you had mice in your boiler can any plumbers help me with this as to how you sort it how do you protect boilers from being a furnace for mice you should see this thing it is unbelievable she rang me last night i've got another mouse on fire she says like it's just crazy Zero thirty thirty eighty fifty five fifty five. tracy's calling us from North Belfast. Good morning, Tracy. Hi, Stephen. Stephen, maybe you can you can help us then. And North Belfast, once upon a time, we had three secondary schools and two shut, boy one and a girl one. And uh, they were all jammed into Mercy College up in, up at Ballyselen. Used to be Our Lady of Mercy's. It's now boy and girl. The school's old and crumbling. The teachers are desperate. I used to work on it as a dinner lady, as you know, because I've been on the phone to you loads of times. Um, the schools um, are trying their damnedest best. I've had three daughters, adults, go to it. Uh, one has her own business, one has a bachelor's degree, and the other one's doing a master's degree. Brilliant. So my youngest daughter, yes, my youngest daughter is at Queen's at the minute. She went to St. Dominic's on the Falls Road. See the difference in what those grammar schools get compared to what we have known as comprehensive schools. I don't know what you call them now, even though I worked in it for a long time. But in North Belfast, all those kids were put into that school. All this stuff was promised. St. Gabriel's and St. Gemma's was uh, levelled. 
the ground is still sitting on the criminal. Oh, Stephen, please go up and visit these people and see. Go on. Uh, what do you mean, visit them? You're telling me the ground's left. Visit them where? No, not in Mercy College. St Gabriel's is levelled. St Gemma's is almost levelled. The, uh, there are all these children are up, and Mercy College are doing their utmost best with them up on on Bally Selling. And you, I'm sure you know where it is. You're familiar. I with do. It. Yes. Go up, Stephen, please go up and see Martin Morland. Please, do you see what they're doing in that school and what they are trying to do for these kids? They don't want to be a babysitting service. They want to be educators. They want to, they want to build And what are you saying to me? Are you saying system. to me it's a fantastic school struggling? Or what are you it's saying struggling, to me? struggling, yes. It's a fantastic struggling school. Struggling in what way? Struggling. Stephen, listen, we don't have the capacity inside the school for all these children. And you know, Stephen, I come from these areas myself. These children need, a lot of them need extra help. A lot of them need extra support. You know, one of my girls actually painted what's called the multi-room. It's all different colours. And um, that's for children who need to go and chill out and relax and, you know, maybe have somebody with them. Um, you know, to calm down and a bit of sensory stuff and that there. And uh, the, the school has broadened its horizons. Um, it has all uh, people of different religions and people. It's not, it is colourful. It's a colourful school. But it is on its knees, Stephen. Please go. Please what do you mean it's on its knees? Uh, Stephen, listen. Do you know, like, I worked in school meals, right? And it was girls only. But before I was medically retired, um, boys started coming in. And with my own girls as well, you'd have brought in tights, underwear, pants, sanitary stuff and that. Other kids would have needed it too. And that was way, that was back then. The dinner ladies did that. Our dinner ladies, and as I'm sure the ones now, were fantastic at bringing stuff in. Kids were coming around, Stephen, who were hungry. They were hungry. Miss, could you make me a piece of toast? Miss? You know, and it was uh, it maybe wasn't for us to do, but we made them a piece of toast. What do you do? What do you do, Stephen? The wee nun, Sister Magella, then used to come around. She was also the school nurse then, and, and obviously working for nothing, probably. So um, you were saying you were saying children. Now this is a few years ago, isn't it? But you, yeah, you, yeah. You, but it's you, still happening, Stephen, because I'm in contact with people there. It's still happening, if not worse. You know, if not worse. Children Stephen. in poverty, children without the basics. Yep. Yeah, without the basics, children. And Stephen, can I tell you, um, being a teenager, we weren't all born this age. Um, it was it was a big thing, and it was a, a thing you don't never forget if you have to go and ask for help for anything as a girl, for, you know, like something sanitary bar or whatever. It's humiliating at that age. It really, really is. But we tried to make the kids feel that this is normal. Just come around, ask us. The teachers did the same. Yeah. Teachers were exactly the same. Stephen, please. It's sitting there. It's just... The two schools were closed. I mean, go and get your searchers to do it. And there was never nothing else built. The ground where St Gabriel's is, is land with the weeds taller than us. And it's just lying there doing nothing. Listen, thank you so much for your call this morning. Thank you, yeah. Tracy. Zero thirty thirty eighty. Uh, 55, 55. Next, retail bosses are demanding urgent action to tackle shop crime amid a 50% surge in violence and abuse against staff. We, we, we wanted to look at this. This was the UK survey by the British Retail Consortium. Incidents hit 1,300 a day uh, for 22-23. Um, what's it like here in Northern Ireland? What's it like to work here in Northern Ireland? Um, how much abuse do you get if you're working in a shop? Martin works for one of the big supermarkets here. Good morning, Martin. Good morning, Stephen. What's it like, man? Um, 
It can be pretty horrible at times, yes. Um, with staff being abused, uh, threatened. In the supermarket? Put, yep. What would be the... Per- what would be the... There's never a, re- a, a, a reason, but what in the, the crazy heads these people abusing you, what are they getting angry about? Well, this was particularly... Proud. This got really bad during COVID where there were restrictions on what people could buy and people were getting annoyed and they were abusing all the staff. And it has just progressively gotten worse. People, maybe through poverty, maybe through not having the money, are stealing a lot. And when they're approached to about leaving the shop without payment, they then get very abusive. I personally have been threatened by someone who told me they had a knife in their pocket. Um, what? Yep. Uh, on one occasion, oh, a good few years back, um, approaching uh, someone who's leaving without pain was actually scratched by a needle and had to go through a course of injections over a year. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I just don't think of this as in, my goodness, I don't know how lucky I am. You know, I come in here to the nice wee safety of the BBC and you're standing there and people are threatening you with knives and they're stealing. Yep. It's, and, and verbal abuse, is it is it regular? Verbal, ver, verbal abuse is a, is a regular occurrence in most supermarkets, in most shops. But, but, but why would people swear at you? Give me an example of a situation. Someone could be too slow. You mightn't have a product that they want. Um, you know, just it sometimes can just be anything. The, the smallest of things can just set people off. And I hope you buck them out, do you? Don't let them come back. Well, that that's the general idea that you approach these people and you ask them to leave the store and then things sort of escalate from there. I've been punched, as I say. Punched? Yep. Why? Because I was asking someone to leave the store. Who had who had verb who was verbally abusing other staff? And do you have the support of your bosses? My company is fantastic. Uh, the the company the company I work for are fantastic. They give us really good training. They're very very supportive when we have it anything like this. Um, yeah, you you couldn't ask more of them, but you, you just can't predict what's going to happen in any given situation. You won't be the best. You know, you won't be on a massive salary. So you're standing on your feet all day, you're working in a supermarket, you're taking this type um, of abuse. Um, the DPA MP in Paisley has actually been talking to the Prime Minister uh, about this. Let's have a listen. According to the independent, sorry, the British Independent Retail Association, on a matter that affects every constituency across this kingdom, 82% of retailers don't even bother reporting physical attacks on their staff when they're attacked. It takes shopkeepers to sell an additional 12 items to make up for an item that has been stolen. Will the Prime Minister support efforts that are being made by that association and many others across this House to ensure that retailers are protected, that theft against them is called out and that they are supported in every way possible? And today at a meeting in Dining Room C, will he encourage those members from those shops in their efforts? Uh, can I firstly pay tribute to the work that my 
Honourable Friend does on this issue as the Vice Chair of the All-Party Group on Retail Crime. Uh, he's absolutely right about the importance of this issue. Working in my mum's shop and her pharmacy growing up, I understand exactly what he's talking about when small businesses are the victims of crime. What I can tell him is that our expectation and our agreement with police forces is that all shoplifting should be followed up where there is evidence, such as CCTV footage, which is something that we did earlier this year, and also that any violent or abusive behaviour towards shop workers, particularly those who provide a valuable service to the public, is never acceptable, and that is why we introduced a statutory aggravating factor for assaults on workers that provide a service to the public, and I commend him on everything he's doing on this issue. Is it always followed up, Martin? As best they can. Let's not forget, you know, there has been cuts across all all walks of life over the past 10 years or so. You know, the police force are being cut. They don't have the resources. Sometimes it could be a red dealing with something else. Um, I had one incident, I remember, oh, five, maybe five years ago, where a lady fell and hurt herself. And we had to wait four hours for an ambulance. You know, it's it's just sometimes it's not possible to follow everything up. And I, I, you know, the other thing, it shouldn't just be a crime to assault someone. It should be a crime to verbally abuse them as well. Because verbal abuse can be very, very upsetting to, to some people. Well, Raymond Neal from the Shop Workers Union Ulster is with us this morning as well. Good morning, Raymond. How you doing? No, um, or, yes, go ahead. Stephen. Stephen. Um, that's all right. That's all right. I can probably remember my own name myself, for goodness sake. <laughs> I was going to say Frank there for a minute. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, how bad is the situation? How worried are you, Raymond? Well, listen, you listen to Martin there. You know, we get this in the daily basis. We have an incident where... Members have, members have been spot at. There's bags of potatoes thrown at them. Um, there's actually a sexual assault um, where one of the, uh, the ladies was grabbed back from behind and tried to, you know, tried to kiss her. Um, verbal abuse is an, an everyday situation. When I was in the city centre last week, Stephen, um, I was just investigating something in one of the retail outlets. And as I was leaving, uh, a lady came up with a quite large dog and proceeded to come into the store. Now, one of the members of staff asked her to leave. She got very aggressive and threatened to let the dog off the lead. Now, I was standing behind the member, and I have to say, I was a bit shaken. So, after, eventually got the lady to leave, and the, the guy was, was physically shaken. Um, and, and, he, and he told me that this is a regular occurrence where this, this shop is actually based. The fine needles van outside the shop, the people coming in stealing quite regularly. And their hands are tied to a certain degree, so when they contact the police, and as Martin said, they're, you know, the, the police is under-resourced, we understand that, but you know, sometimes it can be up to two, three hours before uh, the police will come to the store. It depends on the incident, and sometimes it's not a case that they can come. Uh, and I think repeat offenders, they, they, they know this, so they know they can keep going back into the same stores doing the same things. You won't bomb these people. But if there's no security there, you know, you can't keep them out of the stores. And and you want stronger, specific legislation to protect workers? Well, we passed a bill in Scotland where, where verbal abuse is a criminal offence. We want that to happen over here. I mean, we're happy to meet at Stormont at any time, the MLAs, bring Glenn Roberts out, or, you know, let's sit down, let's talk about it, let's look at the incidents. But, you know, it's fallen on deaf ears, you know, but at least Stormont's back again. 
and that's hope it's not the hope the hokey cokey one foot in one foot out, you know. But we we want to speak with them. We want to sit down. We well, want to get serious. I about think it. the decision's already been made, and it's it doesn't look like it's going to go your way. Um, you say Stormont's back again, and, yeah. and and you put some hope in that. The Department of Justice have told us that they have previously considered the creation of a standalone offence. However, they say there's currently no evidence that suggests that having such a standalone offence would have the desired deterrent effect. They say oh, there's, I- there's already legislation in place under existing laws and they're not going to consider standalone offences. Well, I mean, we've seen success. For. You know, we, we've seen successes in Scotland. I don't have the stats with me, but we've seen a reduce in crime. I mean, and the Labour, you know, if Labour get in the government, they're going to amend the, the Criminal Justice Bill. So they're going to strengthen the tax in the shop workers because they, they realise that these shop workers, they're frontline workers, they're not paid, they're just above minimum wage. And, you know, when the pandemic was on, these people were going into work. They were serving people, they were getting their food. They, they had to deal with all kinds of, of oh, illnesses. Listen, I worked at a you petrol know. station for years. Yeah, There's never a dull moment. And some of it's funny and some of it's not. No, you're right, Jim. I mean, I worked in retail for 20 years myself, and, 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 and I went there's a number of offences, but over the last couple of years, we've seen a fast increase in this. It's actually getting, it's getting critical, and something needs to be done about it. You know, okay, we can, and I think yourselves, you know, you're raising that profile with the Northern Ireland public, which is fantastic. You're about the only one that's doing anything, Stephen. I mean, we're calling all these people, and they can come on, they can talk to the show, and then they go away and forget about it. But we're not going a lot of drop. We've got a freedom from fear campaign. We're surveying our members. We surveyed 3,000 of our members, and that's where we're getting this information from. And you look at that alone. Uh, you know, so what are you hearing? Give me a snapshot of what you're hearing from that feedback from workers and shops. Well, we've got managers. They're leaving the business. They're going looking for other jobs because... Well, they remove now, you know, because uh, Martin says there's been a reduction in, in the finances. So, so all these businesses are hit. So they've reduced their security. They're putting in these gates, um, which bleep with some of these state and so on. But that doesn't. That's not a deterrent. And, and you've got repeat offenders, mental health. I mean, I went there's a situation. Um, I was about a year ago. A guy who's a repeat offender. The police come to take him outside. They know he's mental health. He just now and go again. So he goes back the next day. He does the same thing. It's just repeat, repeat, repeat. And in places, your hands are tied. There's a lot of mental health, cost of living crisis. We're faced with every offensiality. But these guys are front line. I mean, we struggle to get them a decent pay raise. Uh, and you know, that has to be recognised. They're going in for just above minimum wage. They're not sitting with the heaters blowing around their feet. They're in cold warehouses. They're, they're stacking shelves. They're doing their best. And if they're slow, especially checkouts, you know, if you have to wait a wee bit, we've noticed an uptake of that. But guys coming in, uh, buying alcohol, come to the checkout five, ten minutes after the checkout's closed and insisting and throwing bottles of drink onto the floor. I mean, this is ongoing. It's time to deal with it, Stephen. And, and through your media, through yourself, you've raised that proof, and we're grateful for that. But we, we, need, other, we, we need other media outlets for this. People need to realise it's not acceptable. And as a trade union, we will do everything to defend these retail workers. And we'll say to people, join the trade unions. Get involved. This is the only way to stop that. Yeah, but what can you do? Oh, yeah, we want the legislation brought in. Well, the Department of Justice has said no current 
no immediate plans to create a standalone offence. They say they've looked at the evidence. And, and there's no evidence to suggest having a standalone offence would have the desired deterrent effect. So they're saying, certainly for the present, no. Yeah, well, but this is what we're getting. But I mean, Labour, Labour has recognised the Labour government. So, so, so they're going to bring in these bills. They're going to strengthen the laws. And we hope they get back into, into government because, you know, this is the only hope we have. The, the, the Conservative government are doing nothing about it. They, they don't see it. They, they don't have to stand on the shop. They've probably never worked in the shop in their lives. These are people, you know, Labour connects with the working class people. And, and they, they have given us the guarantees. Our, our general secretary, Patrick Dillows, meets with them on a regular basis. And, and he has assurances that this will happen. This are, the, are the police will, interested uh, enough in offences if they're reported? I mean, with all, look, with know, all the stress you know, they're under and, you know, the resources that they don't have, do, do they come out in a timely manner if there's someone threatening a shop worker? Look, it, it depends on the nature of what the incident is. You know, uh, if it's stealing, you, you probably won't get a police, the police come in. If they do come, it's a, it's a number of hours later. If it's an assault, well, you know, we would expect them to, to, to respond quickly. That, hey, ever, again, you know, the reports we're getting, it can be up to an hour later. And by that stage, the person's left the building, and, and hopefully you can well, track. I see, the, I see the cops are telling us here to to the Nolan show. They're they're saying, look, if you're in a shop or business, you see something suspicious or staff being abused, report it to us. Uh, they're they're urging it to be reported. Well, well, look, if you report it, you need the police out there quickly. But this is too simplistic. We then need a society to resource the police, to give them the resources, to give them the people to be able to protect us. Look, it's a really, really interesting territory. Thank you for, for talking to us today. Morning to you. Um, 03030 5555. Maybe you're a shock worker and you've been talking about this yourself. Or you've been experiencing this yourself. Dan and Bard, uh, Dan in Lisburn Road. Yes. Morning, Dan. Yes. Yes, how are you, Stephen? Doing okay. What's happened to you? So I'm having a bit of a disaster because I returned from overseas yesterday afternoon because my mum's funeral is on Monday. Oh, I'm sorry to hear um, that, Dan. I'm sorry. You've lost your you. mum. Sorry. Thank you. So I got a taxi yesterday from just outside the side entrance of the Europa bus station on Glen Gall Street. It was a, a black hackney cab and um, he drove me to my front door at 34 Bonmore Road, BT9. And um, I, he helped me out with the suitcases and my other bag. And I very stupidly left a black shoulder bag with yellow stripes on it, which contained my passport, my visa documents, also my work laptop. And there's also cash in the bag to help pay for my mum's funeral costs. And um, basically, I'm, you know, very preoccupied with the conversation I was about to have with my sister related to the funeral and so on. And he did wait outside the house for a good while. And um, basically, I didn't realise I'd left the bag in the back. Totally my fault. And I'm kind of hoping that, um, like, basically, you know, we had a nice conversation in the taxi. Um, the driver is a Scottish gentleman, maybe like late 50s. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of hoping that he might hear this and realise because I really need what's in the bag, you know. So, so, some, of, so some of what's in that bag uh, is cash to help pay for your mum's funeral, is that right? And also my laptop from work, which I need from work, and also my passport's in there, 
because I have to leave the country again early next week to go back to my job. So it's all very critical and obviously I'm a complete fool for leaving it in the back of the taxi in the first place. Um, well, look, yeah. maybe this driver do, do, do still doesn't realise that it's sitting there in the back. Maybe he hasn't looked in the back of the taxi. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's handed it in to the police. Maybe another passenger's got in and, and lifted it out. I don't know. But, yeah. but, but, but this was a, a, a driver, late 50s, late 60s, you, you think? Um, I'd say, yeah. Like, you know, he, he told me that he's been a Scottish driver. He's been here for 20 years because he moved over here to marry his wife. And, yeah, um, I don't know his name. Uh, but he, you know, seemed like a very nice man. And, you know, I'm just hoping he might realise um, that the bag was left in the taxi. Um, so are you going to struggle now to pay for your mother's funeral without that cash? Well, yeah, it's a complete disaster of, like, epic proportions, to be honest. Um, I'm going to go down today. Like, I have to make a police incident report because, you know, I may need to get an emergency passport. And, um, yeah, the, like, the police officer just advised me to go down to Glengall Street today and speak to some of the drivers. Well, look, lots and lots yeah. of those drivers, right, listen to this yeah. program every single day. There's a yeah. whole community of taxi drivers that have been with me, you know, since my days in City Beat and, and now here at the BBC. Yeah. So, look, I, 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 I've got full confidence that at least lots of those drivers will be talking about this. And yeah. let's see if we can help you get that message to that man with a Scottish accent. You say he told yeah. you... Uh, he's been living here about 20 years in his late That's 50s, right. 60s, and maybe he can help you. Uh, yeah. Maybe he can help get that to you. Look, you have enough that in your head. Great help. You have enough in your head, obviously. So, sorry for your loss, and let's see if we well, can help you today. Thank you much, Stephen. That's much appreciated. Let's hope we can help you. Thank you. Right. We've got some... We've got Dan back on the line. Good morning to you, Dan. Again, Good morning. So just to remind people, literally just a few minutes ago, you come on to the Nolan show, you, you've lost your mum and you left your, your bag in the back of a taxi. There's cash in it for the funeral, your laptop, your passport to get back home. And this was probably about six, seven minutes ago and you were appealing for help. Yes, that's correct. Pat, the taxi driver. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Stephen. This is the network of the Nolan show. Have a chat with Dan. Tell him your news. Dan, the biggest show in the country strikes again. Uh, we we heard your appeal. I spoke to the driver who brought you up at Belfast Public Car taxi driver, black taxi driver, and he's uh, currently on his way up with your bag to return it to you, to the place that he dropped you in, all, all well, due to the power of the Nolan show. That's absolutely amazing, I have to say. Thank you so much. Not a problem. It's, it's a pleasure to have a, a good news story for a change. For, yeah, that for is. It, it restore it would restore my faith in humanity, and it's hugely appreciated at this difficult time. Thanks so much. Is all I can say. Well, I spoke to the driver, and he told me he was currently on his way up to you. That's fantastic. So, right. That is just that is fantastic. That's, that's absolutely, absolutely amazing. It is, and 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 Pat, it's not just the, the the BBC. At the end of the day, you know all. 
I, I appreciate all of of you guys and, and girls within the taxi community. You know, you, you've you've listened to me for my goodness, nearly going on thirty years. City beat now here, and there we go. There's a result today. It, so it's it brilliant. works both ways, Stephen. It works both ways. You don't forget you've helped us out a lot as well. Well, it's you brilliant. Know what I mean? So it's nice to return the favour. And I was just listening to your wee clip there about the money box. You didn't tell her that you still have the money box. You <laughs> haven't taken the money out of it. It's still there. <laughs> All right. Listen, that's a fantastic result at a difficult time for you, Dan. But brilliant. it's just a little bit of help. And, 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 and thank you for trusting us with your story. And I'd just like to say that I've lived all over the world for like the last 25 years and Belfast taxi drivers are the best in the world. And I mean that. Don, I agree with you 100%. And so will Stephen. It's fantastic. Good, good, good. That's made my day. Thank you, Pat. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dan. All the very best. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks a lot. Take care. All the very best. Robert, the taxi driver. Morning, Robert. Good good morning. Tell you what, it didn't, it didn't take you a lot long. I knew it wouldn't. I knew it wouldn't. Yeah, well, Patrick and myself made, made extensive calls to the drivers. I'm at home, Stephen. And a, a guy was, you know, I, I one of the other drivers, Eamon, I, I told him about it. He says, I know exactly who it is. As, as, as them, you know, no, no, let's Scottish. not give the M's and all of that. We don't need to do that. But uh, aye, but anyway, great. The taxi drivers out there are top class. Anybody that leaves anything in the back of a taxi, the only or it's very unfortunate under the circumstances. Unfortunately, the guy has lost his mother. But the point is, there is occasions when people leave stuff in the back of a taxi, and somebody else gets in and maybe not trustworthy and left it. You know, and it puts the driver on uh, the spot. You know, so truthfully and honestly, you know, when people travel in taxis, just make sure they lift yeah, everything. But clearly, clearly, Dan was distracted for oh, goodness' sake. hundred percent, hundred percent. His head. I wouldn't like to have his uh, his grief as we speak. Well, Stephen, look, Robert, uh, the, the bottom line is this: What was that? Within six minutes, you've you've, uh, you've worked. You've, you you you. You lot, the taxi drivers, you've worked faster than the FBI, for goodness sake. <laughs> we are the, <laughs> we are the FBI. <laughs> We're the ones on the streets, Stephen. We are the people on the streets 24-7. You know, and anything can down, we know about it. Well, listen, that's fantastic. Well done. Great. No prob- Good news. No problem, Stephen. Good news. So here, all cheers to the black taxi drivers out there. Thank you, Robert. Morning to you. No, Big Barbara's no calling problem. us this morning as well. Morning. Good morning, Stephen. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm all right. I've wee pain in my right hand side, but I'm all, all, other than that, I don't know if it's my gallbladder or what it is. It just gets okay. a wee bit. Just gets a, It just gives a wee ping when I have uh, when I have fast food. Oh, I have the same problem. I'll be down to see you sometime. Well, let me start off by saying, <coughs> pardon me. Let me start off by saying I'm glad that man got his bag back. There is honest people in Northern Ireland. Yeah, it's brilliant. Now, you were on, your mummy Audrey was on about the mice. Yeah, she's, she's going to do lally about this. Is this a well, common problem, mice gravitating towards boilers in your garage? Well, you see, they go for heat, they even go underneath your fridge, you know. What? They go underneath your fridge, they go where the heat is. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, so far I haven't had anything like that. Only outside or about in the houses, and I was starting to get mice and an odd rat. Well, previous to that, but I'm always afraid of spiders. Right. And I'm, I'm a wee bit afraid of mice too. But I have been told, and I've been doing it, I got apple cider vinegar, I put a taste into a bottle, and filled it up with water, and I spray around the place, you know, at night. Well, your house must be stinking smell. It's not. It's it not. must be. Right? Apples, it's apple not. vinegar. Apple cider vinegar. You're spraying that around the house? Yes. No, no, no. Stephen, I've been doing it for a year now. Imagine spraying vinegar around your house. It was a spa- Would that not make your house smell you like dirty socks? I, I can't even smell it, Stephen, what I'm doing, because you're topping it up with water. Oh, right. It's, you're topping it up with water. You don't usually taste of apple cider vinegar. You're diluting it. And top it up with water. I think you're winding me up. No, I'm not. I you're think, listening to me. I think you're trying to get Fantasy Island smelling like dirty socks. No. I ain't going to go down to that house and you're some Fantasy Island and see what you're talking about. Listen, this is true, Stephen. I'm right. afraid of spiders too. I'm afraid of mice. Yeah, so am I. So am I. Well, I and the spiders, the spiders are getting bigger. Have you noticed this? Well, I know that. But big that's hairy legs on them and a crawler crawling around the floor. This thing with big hairy legs. Well, that's what I'm telling you. This Brenda behind the you scenes here is saying he's had the same in his house. Vinegar, Stephen. Get up and say there's vinegar. Put a wee taste into a bottle. Like yes. a, not even a quarter of a cup full. I'm not doing top this. It up with, no. Top it up with water. I'm not doing it. Give it a wee sp- You're not listening to me. Yes. And give it a wee spray around the house. And Stephen, I can honestly say I've been doing it and I've never seen a spider since. Well, can I tell you, Not if I did that in my house, right, not only would there be no spiders, no mice, there'd be nobody in the house. Stephen, there's no smell of it because we've been doing it and I know other people's doing it. Now, listen, about the mice... And odd and an oddish thing. If you put a wee, wee bottle of that round our boiler, they don't like the smell of apple cider vinegar or peppermint. Does anybody else have this program of the mice going up on fire, going, going on fire? I wouldn't be a bit surprised because you're going under a boiler. They hate to go for the heat. But are they completely stupid, these things? I wouldn't say they were stupid. They would probably be wiser than us. The way you're saying to me about smelling apple cider vinegar. That's good for apple cider vinegar is good for keeping the spiders away. The peppermint is good for keeping the mice away. And I tell you, I haven't seen a spider in six months and I was keep coming down with spiders. The Im- the imminent problem is the mice at the heating boiler. That's the imminent problem. Well get tell Audrey to get a wee thing of peppermint. And, and put a wee drop into the water and leave a wee tubs, a couple of wee tubs outside the boiler. Should the mice will eat that? No, they don't like the smell of it. They won't come in. Mice don't like the smell of peppermint? Peppermint, yes. If you go onto your phone and crack it all up about mice, you'll see that on your phone. I've been doing it, Stephen, and I've had no trouble at all. And like, I haven't had a spider in six months. I don't care about the spiders, it's the mice. Well, that's, you know, well, that's what I'm telling you. Put peppermint in round, and, and, and a dish of wee dishes of water or go in and spray round it, not near the boiler, like, but go in and spray the, 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 what do you call it, your outhouse. Go in and spray it and they'll, they'll disappear. They don't like the smell of it. 
That's the peppermint now. But the other thing is for the, the spiders. But you know what? I'm troubled with if anybody can help me now. I'm troubled listening to you. <laughs> Not very often I get talking to you now. You're all so busy. Listen, it's good to talk uh, to you. No, I'm troubled with Stephen at the moment. Slaters. Slaters. Slaters? I've got them. Do you remember I told you I bought white carpet? Yeah. Right? The thing I never contemplated for is you can see these slaters on the white carpet. So yes, I've maybe I've I've only got a couple, you know, across a week. They try. So I'm now spending my time bent down. See, bent down at my age, Barbara. Uh-huh. Bent down, lifting these, lifting these wee slitters up. Uh huh. But anyway, you're saying about bent down. If you get rid of that big fat belly, you wouldn't have the trouble bent down. It is a problem, and I'll tell you. Well, the I've other... told you before. You can go to the doctors and ask the doctor for this injection. It helps you to take weight off. And they say it's not in Northern Ireland, but I can tell you it is in Northern Ireland because the relation of mine goes and gets it done and it's lost four stone. Do you know Do you know the technical problem that fat men like me have? And it's deeply irritating, right? You, you go out and you're walking through a supermarket, you're walking along the street, you're walking in the BBC and these people say, your, 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 your lace is loose. Your lace is loose. You you're going to trip over that. And so I, I just cut to the chase down. I say to these people, I'm too fat to bend down there. Do you want to tie it? And I hold my foot out. I'm sick and tired of people. Mind your own business if my lace is loose. Well, why do you, you buy the coming up, now if you don't have to tie? You get people coming up to you in the supermarket and they tap your back. Your lace is loose. I mind yeah. your own business. I'm too fat to, to get down there to tie it. Well, you just mix it. I'll go ahead again and get that weight off, Stephen. It's bad for your heart. I have terrible lot of health problems, as you know. And I'm waiting again to go in for another operation. Are you? Are you all right? Yeah. No, well, I don't know what... what, what this can make for the end of me. Oh, no, no, no. Well, listen. Well, listen, you're another one that's been listening to me for years. So you stay in touch with us. Do you hear me? I will. Thank you very much. Good morning. I'm going to see you shortly. All right. I'll have the peppermint and the apple cider. Keep you away. Thank you, Big Barbara, Joan and Bally Robert. Good morning, Joan. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. Just to tell you about the mice I've had. Yes. I've had 20 mice in my garage. And I've caught, well, I've caught 20 mice in the garage. 20? 20. Beside your boiler? Round my boiler, yes. And I've terrified even to handle a mouse trap. Now I can set a mouse trap, empty a mouse trap. And reset it again. But there must Not be mice anymore. We must be able to get a plumber to help us with mice around our boilers. Like they must, they, they must be able to advise us a what we can do. Not do it, Stephen. Why not? A plumber doesn't go for mice. But they, but they must be experiencing the problem so often that they can help us fix it. Shoot them. What? Shoot them. Shoot them. Yeah. How would that do? I, I think you'd be arrested. <laughs> sure, the mice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I tell people to mind their own business about your Tommy Stephen. There you're would then be. There you're then... just lovely the way you are. <laughs> All right. Listen, thank you very much. All right, Stephen. Thank bye you. Bye. Good morning. Good morning. Zero thirty thirty eighty fifty five fifty five. I think we're just hearing about the community that is the Nolan Show this morning, aren't we? 
and all its different kinds. What about this next? What's your usual Saturday night look like? If I'd been out till quarter to three, would you lock the door? Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? So, imagine just sitting in the house. You know, you get the RH, you're sitting in the house, you're watching a bit of TV, you're listening to a nice bit of music, or do you actually miss going out for the weekend this type of malarkey? BBC have banned me saying the word malarkey. That'll be another 2,000 complaints. Um, There's a new 30s plus club set to launch at the Limelight in Belfast. An evening out, they say, for those who want to relive their nightclubbing days and still be at home in time to put the kids to bed. Belfast Telegraph Night Editor John Laverley is with us. Commentator Emma Wolf is with us as well. Good morning, John. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Like, there's a bit, there's, there's a bit of grace in 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 embracing your age, Emma, and realizing that you can't be twenty anymore, nor do you want to be. There is, but. Look, like you, the idea of going out clubbing all night makes me feel, well, it actually makes me feel ill. I don't want to do that again. I'd be happy never to see the inside of a nightclub again. But I like the idea of this new club for the over 30s. I think it starts at like five in the afternoon and you're back by nine o'clock. You're in your pajamas. You're tucked up in bed by nine nine o'clock, ten o'clock. Absolute heaven. But you can still go out partying. Why would you want to party? I mean, some of that music made me feel quite, you know, made me feel quite nostalgic. That was brilliant. That was lovely music. Why not? What's wrong with going out dancing, socialising, people wanting to meet people, people wanting to have a few drinks, but they don't want to get back in at three in the morning. Well, why don't they just go out to any conventional nightclub? Because it won't start until 10 o'clock at night. Oh, do they not open to them? Do they not? The club... I mean, look, most club nights won't won't kick off until 9 or 10. And then you're there and it's midnight and it's 1 in the morning and you've got to get up for work, you've got to sort out the kids. I think it's a brilliant idea. And you're home by 9 o'clock. John? Well, funny enough, Stephen, I was reading up about this in Belfast Live and uh, it says here that uh, a nightclub is launching a new club night dedicated to those who want to dance the night away. I think they should have changed that to dance the early evening away I mean it's, at, at that time it's opening in April you know it's going to be it's going to still be uh, bright uh, and light when you're when you're getting out you know I mean and um, I mean I'd rather to be honest I'd rather sit at home you know drinking apple cider vinegar and eating peppermints um, <laughs> a mice away from your boiler <laughs> but, but <laughs> have you I, had a mouse I mean, with in your boiler uh, yeah I mean uh, uh, th- th- there's a reason for this seriously but I mean uh uh, I mean, the last time I was at a nightclub was probably just over twenty years ago, and I would where I would be the age of these people who are who are going to this one at the at the limelight. 
And um, so what? I felt so old. I mean, uh, the, the, and you're scared to dance because you'd be called a daddy dancer. And young people, young people don't want uh, people in, in middle age at at uh, nightclubs. But is this not why this is such a good idea? Then that this is a, a safe zone for over thirty year olds. Then is it not that they feel welcome because it's designed for them? It's not for young people. Well, exactly. I, I don't. I don't blame them for uh, for. Uh, creating this uh, this for people. I mean, I, I think that the the if you're in the market for that, and that's why I'm wondering. But is there a market for this? I mean, I know I know it's sort of things are very successful in London, but we'll need to find out. I mean, they'll find out obviously in April when they open this if there it's is a market sad, for though. it. It's a bit sad that it's over thirties. Come on, you can still. I was definitely still clubbing when I was thirty. I think maybe over forties is more appropriate. Yeah, thirties young, thirties young, forties ancient, isn't it? Thirties so young, you should still be out until you know three in the morning. Definitely over thirty. But forty or forty or you know, you're starting to forty or a daddy dancer. You're definitely a daddy dancer. Start to think uh, about the bus pass at forty. It's not that long. It's not that far away. And then fifty. Look, I'm telling you now. Fifty, just just close the book. But on the well, mind, well, on the well, Stephen, there's going to be an awful lot of people who have got uh, you know their laces loose at that time of the day. <laughs> <laughs> at least they can, at least they can help each other tie them. You know, <laughs> know. that's right. So, to these nightclubs, this is how far out of touch I am, right? So, when when you when you when the young people go out now. Um, are those nightclubs not open until what time? Do they not open until nine or ten at night? Is that the point of this, or what? Definitely, you would. You definitely wouldn't go to a nightclub at seven in the evening, right? You wouldn't go at the same time you go to a restaurant or a pub, right? Club nights will kick off around nine or ten. Absolutely, probably eleven. You know, so people go to the pub first, or they're drinking at home, they're preloading, or they're just doing other things, and then they rock up at, at ten at night. Mm-hmm. Then you start, and that for me is already way. Well, unless I'm working, it, oh, 10 o'clock, I don't want to be getting up and going out. I don't, absolutely not. For most of us now, that's way past our bedtime. So this is for people, I suppose they're going after work and they're just having a wee boogie and then they're home by home by 9 o'clock. Well, one of the good things is you'll, you'll get a taxi in Belfast at that time of the night. Which is... <laughs> Why does it run just until 9? So I, I get it that they want it I to run earlier. You can clear out, you clear out the oldies by nine o'clock, ah. you clear them out, you clean up their, you know, soft <laughs> drinks, and then the young people can come in and properly start. <laughs> I wonder, is that the case? So, so there are two age groups that never meet, never see each other. There'll be this <laughs> window in between, between nine and whatever, yeah, and then all in of come us the young over people. All thirties will be hobbling out, we'll be hobbling out in our Zimmer frames at nine o'clock with our bus passes, mm-hmm. and all the others will be coming in with their, you know, mini skirts and... Uh, have you embraced old age, John? Well, I mean, I heard your song by the Beatles there, you know, when I'm 64. I'm actually not too far away from that, uh, just over 60. So, um, well, I, I mean, for me, Saturday nights and nights like that are, are about sitting, eating and talking. And, uh, I mean, that's why that, that sort of nightclub is not for me. I mean, uh, I, I believe in... In the art of conversation, I don't think when you're when you're twenty or your twenties or your thirties, you care that much about the conversation. You're more into the music and the raving and 
and then, and yeah, and the main you don't thing mind shooting cl- each other, but when you get to our age, I, th- I think you, I think you prefer. I'll tell you now, I maybe I've... the main thing in a club is that you can't hear anyone speak. No, no, no. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's all shouting, and I, I'm I'm too old to shout these days. I mean, I think maybe, I, I'm, as I say, I went I went to nightclubs, uh, you know, a, a few times, about twenty odd years ago, when I was late thirties, early forties, and I. Really felt out of place, you know, with the with the young kids there, and that's why this is maybe a good idea. Yeah, Emma's because... talking about all this raving in her twenties. When I was in my twenties, I was standing up in the, uh, I was up in the bot, uh, at the top of the Stranmore's Road with a wee blue crackle in my hand and an umbrella coming out of it. There was no rave music for me. We were dancing to, what was it that that uh, Abba. Dancing oh, Queen. The corner and the fly. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Emma. Thank you, John. Thanks. Thanks a lot, See everyone. See you down the club. I'll have the uh, the peppermint spray on for you. Um, thank you very much indeed, everyone. We'll see you on Five Live tonight at 10 o'clock. Back here Monday morning at 9. Have a good weekend. And thank you so much for your company. Biggest show in the country. Listen again on BBC Sounds. Tweet at Stephen Nolan. In a digital world that demands your attention, it can be challenging to build your own worldview. The Financial Times brings you rigorous and independent global journalism, so you can see more angles and find time to think for yourself. Don't jump to conclusions. Read to them instead. Fearlessly Pink. Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless. Leute, habt ihr Bock darauf, eure Versicherung in den Griff zu kriegen und dafür 30 Euro Shoppinggutschein abzustauben? Hier ist übrigens Tara vom Podcast Tara sagt was und ich sage euch, ladet euch die Clark-App runter und nutzt bei der Anmeldung mein Code Tara sagt Clark. Alles groß und zusammengeschrieben. Da kriegt ihr nicht nur eure Verträge gecheckt, sondern ihr könnt euch auch kostenlos und unabhängig von den Expertinnen beraten lassen. Also probiert Clark aus und holt euch den 30 Euro Shopping-Gutschein für Ikea, Amazon und Co. mit dem Code Tara sagt Clark. Musik